Tonight's reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is the word of the Lord. Friday night, Sandy and I uh, had a, a date night. And one of the things that we like to do on date nights, if we have the chance, is go to a movie. And we like to go to downtown West, where old people go. Um, because we particularly like French films with subcaptions that read, But what is love, Marguerite, as the poet dies? That's kind of, our, uh, uh, kind of the kind of film that we enjoy. Well, so we were checking out uh, the, the films for this week, and one of the things you do when you go to Downtown West is you call them films, not movies. Um, uh, films. And the first one that interested us was called Eye Origins, and it explores uh, what happens when a biochemist begins to explore reincarnation and chaos theory. And uh, that seemed a little too much for a Friday night. So... We, we saw one called Wish I Were Here, which is uh, Zach Graff's, crowd, Graff's crowdfunded follow-up to Garden State. And it is very interesting. It's about a 35-year-old struggling L.A. actor named Adian Bloom who winds up homeschooling his kids. But he's also a, a secular Jewish man, and he's very much on a spiritual journey. And, and there's some very profound moments when he sits down with his rabbi and uh, talks about the purpose of life. Uh, and the rabbi is a, is a young man. He's very kind. He's very articulate. And at one point he says something to the effect of, you know, just figure out God as you understand him and try to connect with that. And at one point, a very poignant part of the, of the, of the, of the film, he says to his wife, I have no idea what to do. And she says, do you mean parenting or life? And and uh, he says, yes. <laughs> and I really appreciate people trying to make films about spiritual questions. It takes a lot of guts. Uh, and I appreciate filmmakers who depict clergy, uh, rabbis, pastors, uh, who are not child molesters. I mean, that's a, encouraging to see uh, a pastor or a rabbi presented uh, not going to jail for something. Um, so I like that. The, the, the rabbi in, in the movie is really everything a modern clergyman is supposed to be. He's understanding, he's empathetic, he's affirming, he's kind of like a yoga instructor of the soul. Uh, you know, hey, it's about your practice, and you don't want to hurt yourself, and whatever's working for you tonight, that's what we want you to do. Thank you for coming. Namaste. And, and there's a, a part of me that would love to be that pastor. Um, you know, it, it's, it's better than a child molester, and I'm glad he's, he's doing that. 
But as I got back into the text today, I was just struck by how different the young rabbi in the movie approaches the meaning of life than the young rabbi in our text. Um, Jesus just takes a very different approach, he says. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what does he mean? The rest of the gospel really will try to unpack that question. But there are some clues in tonight's text. And since this fall, we're going to study the gospel of Matthew. And it essentially is all about this idea of of repentance as the way of entering the kingdom of God. I thought we'd just start tonight and, and try to clarify our terms a little bit. You remember Jesus has just finished enduring the devil's temptations in the Judean wilderness down in the southernmost part of Israel. He hears that Herod has arrested his cousin, John the Baptist. Mark tells us that uh, this is because uh, John had criticized Herod's incestuous marriage with Herodias. And so when he gets this bad news, Jesus returns to Galilee. And uh, I think Jesse's put together some slides for us here. Galilee is in the north. If you're watching the the news today, this would be about 40 miles north of the Gaza Strip where all the conflict is is happening. And the action begins to to happen in Capernaum. If you see Capernaum, it's up on the the northwest side of the lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus evidently uh, moves away from the south where there was political and religious oppression to the north where he can minister more freely. This is where he is from. Uh, You'll notice a lot of mountain names in there. It's a very mountainous region, which is much less populated. The entire region of the Galilee had about 200,000 people in it at that time. And, And that's where he goes to set up shop. And we have another picture here of what it looked like from Capernaum. Capernaum's still there today. It's a small village. And uh, it just looks out over this lovely, beautiful sea surrounded by uh, orchards and and rolling hills. It's it's, it's quite a place. Well, Matthew tells us that Jesus has uh, moved up to the north uh, to what he calls uh, the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the 12 tribes of Israel who settled into the region of the Galilee. And when the Assyrian armies came in 737 B.C. to conquer Israel, those two tribes fell first, the two tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And Isaiah had made a prophecy about those two tribes. Essentially, it was that these who fell first would be the first to greet the Messiah. And so Matthew says that when Jesus moves to the Galilee to begin his ministry, this is a fulfillment of that great prophecy. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. In Isaiah's day, The two northern tribes had a reputation for idolatry. By Jesus' day, the northern area of Galilee had a reputation for commingling with the other religions from the north and being spiritually impure. 
They were seen as half-breeds. They were seen as spiritually insincere by the more pure southern uh, group based in Jerusalem. And so it's significant, and really it, it echoes the gospel, in that the Lord begins his ministry uh, among the outsiders, among the darkest group, among the outcasts, among the people that were not seen as, as worthy of the Messiah. Now, once Jesus settles in Capernaum, he begins preaching. And, and Matthew summarizes his message, message like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I want to break that down with us a little bit because it really does set the stage for the rest of the gospel. I want to look at the three phrases there independently. First, let's talk a little bit about the kingdom of heaven. What, what did Jesus mean? Well, one thing that we can say right off the bat is that when the other gospels refer to the kingdom of God and Matthew's gospel refers to the kingdom of heaven, they're talking about the same thing. It just had to do with who you were writing for. If you're writing for a Jewish audience... Uh, you, you wrote the kingdom of heaven. If you're writing for Gentiles in a broader audience, you wrote the kingdom of God. So there's the same thing. And Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God is, is essentially the heart of his whole message. It's what he teaches about more than anything else. And uh, tonight is going to have a little bit more feel of a, of a classroom lecture. I wanted to give you a, a quote from a very good book on the kingdom of God by George Eldon Ladd. Uh, if we could put that up. This theme of the coming of the kingdom of God was central in his mission. His teaching was designed to show men how they might enter the kingdom of God. His mighty works were intended to prove that the kingdom of God had come upon them. His parables illustrated to his disciples the truth about the kingdom of God. And when he taught his followers to pray, the heart of the petition were the words, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. On the eve of his death, he assured his disciples that he would yet share with them the happiness and fellowship of the kingdom. And he promised that he would appear again on earth in glory to bring the blessedness of the kingdom to those for whom it was prepared. Now, why doesn't Jesus, if it's that important, why doesn't Matthew explain what he means? Well, the reason probably is because Pretty much everyone reading, at least every Jew reading Matthew's gospel, would already know what it meant. It was a very uh, common uh, concept uh, that was part of their vocabulary. It was something that Jews were looking for and longed for desperately. Uh, So let's just go back and remind ourselves what a Jew would have believed about the kingdom of God when Jesus said this. The, The Hebrew scriptures clearly teach that God is, quoting Psalm 47, the great king of the earth... Psalm 103, his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 145, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. So one idea that you would have if you were a first century Jewish man or woman and you knew the Torah is that God is the king. God is the king of the universe. And you'd also believe that God is the king of the covenant people, the king of Israel. And he delegates his kingly authority to David and his descendants. Now, when Israel begins to decline morally and spiritually, the prophets begin to look for a great future day when God will come and reign on earth in the person of the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, the people dwelling in darkness will see a great light. 
God's great blessings will flow and judgment will be for those who reject his rule. The Hebrew word for kingdom is Malkuth. The Greek word is Basalia. Lad says in his book, the primary meaning of both the Hebrew and Greek words for kingdom is the rank, authority, and sovereignty exercised by a king. A kingdom is the authority to rule, the sovereignty of the king. So the kingdom of God is God's rule. The kingdom of God is God's reign. The kingdom of God is God's authority. The kingdom of God is God's dominion on earth expressed and manifested in the person of Christ. And this is the point where our Lord's teaching about the purpose of life starts to part ways so drastically from the teachings of popular spirituality, which often have to do with connecting with some kind of force in the universe. Because the Lord stresses authority. When the Lord starts talking about the way the world really works, He says the first thing, people, you need to understand is that there is a kingdom, and you're not the king. And there is a kingdom that's different than the kingdom of this world. And I am coming to bear witness of it. He is planting a flag in enemy territory. He is announcing a revolution. He is declaring the change of a king. So what is the kingdom of God? God's rule on earth. Now the second little phrase we need to think about, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The prophets saw the kingdom as future. Jesus says the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is here. The kingdom has come. It's now present on earth in the person of Jesus. The revolution has begun. Now the third phrase, the third word we need to think about is repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is saying that because the kingdom is now present on earth in his person, there is really one rational response, and that is repentance. The Greek word metanoia means to turn or to change. Jesus is saying, turn your lives around, for here comes the kingdom of heaven. We don't repent so that the kingdom will come. We repent because the kingdom has come. The best definition I've read anywhere uh, on repentance comes from a, a dictionary, theological dictionary of the New Testament. And I'll read it to you, and I think we have it on this next slide. God's definitive revelation demands final and unconditional decision on man's part. It demands radical conversion, a transformation of nature, a definitive turning from evil, a resolute turning to God in total obedience. He who does not convert falls under divine judgment. This conversion is once for all. 
The whole proclamation of Jesus is a proclamation of unconditional turning to God, of unconditional turning from all that is against God. Now, Jesus will spill this out in a a number of different ways. And I'll just read two. Uh, Luke 9, verse 57 and following. Jesus is talking about the demands of the kingdom and what repentance looks like. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds in the air have nests, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But the man said, oh Lord, let me go bury my father. Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their dead. As for you, you go proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord. Let me go say farewell to those who are at my home. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Matthew 10, 34 is another place where the Lord talks about what repentance looks like. Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Lad says this in his book on the kingdom. The kingdom makes one fundamental demand, the demand for decision. In Christ, the kingdom now confronts. The life of the age to come now stands before us. The one who shall tomorrow be the judge of all men has already come into history. He faces us with one demand, decision. Boltman is right when he says that Jesus proclaimed the nearness of God as the demander. The basic meaning of repentance is to turn around, to reverse the course of life, to change the whole course of action, to turn and embrace and decision the kingdom of God. We had a good talk on this Friday lunch in our guys group, and one of the things that came out of it, we realized that there's capital R repentance and small r repentance. Uh, There is a moment in our lives when we have to decide whether to repent, to turn, to change, to realign, to readjust, to acknowledge His Lordship over our life. We call that conversion. But then there are many moments every day the rest of our life where we have small our repentance, where we daily decide to set aside the lower desires of the flesh for the higher desires of the Spirit, where we daily decide that we are not going to find life in the the broken and distorted values of the world, but only in God and His ways. So every day is a day for repentance. So this is what Jesus means when He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, He means God's reign has come to earth in me. Get on board or get out of the way. That's what He means. So different than the way we share the gospel usually. 
Uh, here are 10 reasons why you might believe this. Uh, let me identify your felt needs and show how Jesus can meet your felt needs. Jesus says, look, it's here now. Get in or get out. Well, all that may be clear. But we need to keep in mind what we learned last week about Satan's strategies against the kingdom. And, and by the way, uh, Satan, Scripture says, is for a time king of this world, so he's not thrilled about the Lord coming to establish his rightful rule. Satan deceives us and even uses Scripture to do so. So the question that I think we need to ask as we kind of push towards some kind of application tonight is, do I really understand the demands of the kingdom of God? Have I really repented? And last week, for those of you that were here, there was one moment that kind of came out that wasn't necessarily in the, in the manuscript, and we were talking about growth and conversations. A couple of you had said, what are we going to do about growth in the fall? Because we're getting a little bigger. And, and, I, and I had said, what that had said to me was that if I were truly preaching the cross, would we have a growth problem? And I thought about that as I thought about this text this week, is that if I understood repentance, if you understood repentance, if, if we clearly, clearly embrace the demands of the kingdom, would we need more chairs? Now, I, I thought about this this week, and it was, it was a very strange way this uh, kind of hit me this week. Uh, this is called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. This is one of ten volumes. Uh, the editor is uh, Gerhard Kittel, a German professor of New Testament. Uh, if you went to seminary and you studied Greek, this is one tool you probably would have. It's still considered the gold standard. The cover says, uh, one of the few biblical studies of this generation that's destined for immortality. <laughs> I mean, no one's ever said that about my books. I just, I just want to say that. The New York Times says there's nothing else quite like Kittel and authority. And so I was, um, I pulled this off to look up metanoia because it has a very extensive study of, of, of the Greek word, how, what it meant in Hebrew, what it meant in Aramaic, what it meant in secular Greek, biblical Greek, how the, how the rabbis interpreted it. I mean, it's all in here. And so I was enjoying that. And it's good, orthodox, evangelical, solid teaching. And just happened to, to flip to the preface, and Professor Kittle had written this. It fills us with a deep sense of thanksgiving and augurs well for the future that in spite of rumors to the contrary, both at home and abroad, we've been able to finish volume four of the dictionary, even in the midst of violent international conflict. Tubingen, August 1942. And I thought, August 1942, Tubingen. Of course, that's right in the middle of the Third Reich. And I decided to do a little research on Professor Kittle. And uh, I, what I found out is that this great New Testament scholar who spent his entire life studying the words and life of Jesus Christ was a Nazi. And a virulent anti-Semite who wrote anti-Semitic propaganda for the Third Reich. 
In a lecture given in June of 1933, he argued that Jews should be stripped of their citizenship and forbidden from practicing medicine, law, scholarship, or journalism while he was writing and editing the dictionary. He was also writing papers arguing that it was a crime for a German to marry a Jew. When Hitler established the National Institute for History of the New Germany, Dr. Kittel became one of its faculty and praised it as, quote, a weapon in the fight against Jewry. In a 1937 lecture at Cambridge, he mentioned that Hitler carried a New Testament in his back pocket and consulted it daily when someone questioned the Fuhrer's faith. And another great scholar, William Albright, wrote, in view of the terrible viciousness of his attacks on Judaism and the Jews, which continued at least until 1943, Gerhard Kittel must bear the guilt of having contributed more perhaps than any other Christian theologian to the mass murder of the Jews by Nazis. Well, what kind of man was this monster? Well, I found another book, Theologians Under Hitler. Very interesting book. And essentially, the the writer, Paul Erickson, goes to some length to prove that that he was a gentle, devout, church-going Lutheran who was a man of good character who wanted to help his country and that his positions were carefully thought out and reasonable within the context in which he was living. Now, Tübingen is a lovely German town dotted by churches. And it just occurred to me that we can, we can imagine Professor Kittel, after editing this masterful definition of repentance, which is, is entirely what the Bible says, putting his pen down, walking over to the Lutheran church, sitting in worship, and at the time of confession, confessing his Sins, repenting. But what would he have repented of? We don't know, of course, but he probably, as he sat there with his wife and children in this lovely little Lutheran church in this lovely little riverside village or city of Tubigan, he probably confessed what we all confessed, that we said something unkind to our spouse, that we... We're in a debate with a colleague and didn't respect him that we ought to spend more time with our son. And so as the professor is writing about repentance and repenting himself, he is contributing to the slaughter of six million Jews and seems to have no awareness that that's wrong. Now, God's people have a bad habit of doing this. We forget to repent deeply. We repent shallowly. And this is what the, this is the, what the prophets bring against Israel. They, they say, look, you've forgotten what repentance is. Isaiah opens with this uh, hard word from God. God says, quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games. You have worn me out. I am sick of your religion. While you go right on sinning, when you put on your next prayer performance, I'll look the other way. And so I wondered as I thought about this this week, and I thought about the church in Germany, and I thought about Israel, I thought about me, and I thought about you, And I wonder what it is we're missing. 
I wonder how often I go to the Lord or you go to the Lord and we confess, you know, whatever the, you know, the angry thought was or the lustful thought was or the, the anxious thought was. And, and the Lord thinks, seriously? That's all you got? Too much Game of Thrones is all you got? I know your life. I don't know exactly what this kind of deep repentance looks like. I do, I do wonder, you know, 200 years from now when people look back at the, the church in the South at the beginning of the 21st century, if they'll say, they'll, they'll say, you know, Christians at that point, and then everyone in the, will go, <laughs> really? They did that? I wonder what we're missing. I had a conversation with, with a friend recently uh, who, who said, the one thing I know is that God's a trinity, Jesse and Marianne sang for us. And so it probably has something to do with relationships. The one thing I know is that it probably has something to do with how I relate to you and how you relate to me. That, that is probably the first step towards deeper repentance is to begin to understand sin relationally and not just as transgressing taboos. You know, the, the, the number one sin that every young man in the world seems to struggle with is lust and, and acting on that in inappropriate ways and pornography and all of that. And Get it, bad, don't, stop, not healthy, demeaning to women, yeah, 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 yeah. But sometimes I wonder, maybe you're so fixated on that. Maybe Satan wants you so fixated on, darn, I looked again, that he's keeping you away from the real sin. Maybe you're like the German professor confessing that he didn't water his garden that week while 6,000 Jews are in trains going to be burned. Maybe I'm like that. So what I pray for this fall as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, which talks about what life in the kingdom looks like, is that God will give us the gift of a deeper repentance beyond just, yeah, I shouldn't have had that beer. And that we'd have a deeper embrace of the kingdom. You know, we just can't help it... The gospel is going to be different than the spirituality of the popular culture. Just as I was coming in today, I pulled this out of the paper. It's a, they call it an astrograph. I don't know what that means. but Capricorns, focus on whatever you feel passionate about. Do what comes naturally to you. That's a good way to end up in jail, friends. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's not good advice. We can do better, okay? We can do better. Jesus' message does cut against the grain of popular spirituality.